Okay, hello. Welcome to another episode of The House List. This is my weekly podcast. My name is Peter Agostin. I'm your host. Thank you for joining me again. Um, Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving week. Um, If you've been tuning in to The House List, I appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed last week's double episode special for those traveling and and all that during the Thanksgiving break. If you had one, or even if you didn't, you got two episodes. Um, I'm going to try and do that again in December, so keep an eye out. I'm going to try, you know, and um, share more episodes when I can. You know, I'm producing these very much on the fly, Um, if you haven't already noticed which I think is somewhat evident. Um, But that also adds to the great spirit of what I'm trying to do with this. You know, it ain't produced. This is not in the studio. I'm not, I don't have, I'm not um, under some umbrella, uh, you know, being shielded. This is me. I'm out here, you know. Um, (laughs) Anyway. Well, on today's show i have a a great guest the tour manager sound engineer touring sound engineer and my old fellow co-worker at the knitting factory uh, when i worked there in manhattan melanie reniker is here and uh, we had a great conversation i caught up with her while she was passing through new york on tour tour managing and doing sound for this singer-songwriter fellow by the name of David Ramirez. Some of you may be familiar with him. So she um, has been touring with bands, different kinds. Um, I know she's, for those that um, are familiar with Deer Tick uh, from Providence, Rhode Island, She's been their tour sound tech and tour manager a bunch over the years since they started getting their um, uh, their tours down. Those guys are cool. Hung out with those guys a few years ago here and there. They're sort of Knitting Factory alum in a way as well. And we talk a lot about, Melanie and I, about um, our time working at the music venue for those of you that may not be familiar with that club, uh, now it's kind of a chain, a semi-chain um, uh, in tertiary, secondary markets in America. They got one in Spokane. They got one in Boise. Those have been there for a while. Reno. Um, and But the club started in New York City a long time ago, and it's changed a couple. It's had three different locations. We worked at the second one, which closed in about the end of 2008, technically. And uh, I was a talent buyer there, and Melanie was one of the uh, sound people there. And I was a club that had three floors, so there was a lot of staff, um, sound people, bouncers, bartenders, barbacks, night managers, you know, and there, and, and then me in the middle of all of that. Um, so, yeah, we talk about that, and then we just talk about 
her work as a tour manager and, and uh, the stuff that she's done. She's super cool. She's um, definitely uh, knows this job and um, is definitely an in-demand uh, sound tech, is, has, has worked in many, many clubs, big and small. So we, we kind of talk about that life, that aspect of, of the business too, which I think if you're a touring act, then you'll definitely understand. You may have even worked with her um, in, in any number of places. She lives in Austin now, uh, but was living, of course, in New York um, when we first met. So I think it was a pretty cool one, uh, especially as the first sort of touring person like you know the tour live touring industry kind of uh person that that i've talked to on this um so hopefully this will lead to to more um i know that world well and and i love those those people that work in that 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 part that corner of the business of show because they they get it done you know the people whether it's the front of house people at the club or your touring uh, sound person or the merch person or the tour manager. Those are kind of essential characters uh, and members of, of a team that help uh, any number of musicians actually get uh, their show down in a, in a cohesive way and all that. So anyway, you, you get it. You get where I'm coming from. So you're going to listen to this chat. Uh, I want to actually just also thank Melanie for taking the time out because they literally were on tour. She came over to the house before she had to load in. I think they were playing at the Mercury Lounge uh, in Manhattan that night. And on this particular tour, she's like recording every show. And then they're like releasing it as an album or something like that each day. It's like a free like the the people that were bought tickets for that show can like uh get a copy of that show later so she was not only uh you know doing sound during the show driving uh tour managing from show to show driving each show but also recording and basically engineering a live album on the fly every night so if that gives you any kind of picture of how talented this person is then then you might get it so Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Melanie here on The House List with Peter Augustin. Start the conversation is just like, who are you in New York with right now? Uh, right now I'm with uh, David Ramirez. He's a singer-songwriter out of hmm. uh, Austin, Texas. And you live in Austin now too, right? Yeah, for the past two years. And you moved there from New York? I did. And... Um, but you're not from originally from New York, are you? No, no. I grew up in uh, Spokane, Washington. Oh, cool. And then lived in Seattle for seven years before moving to Oh, New that's York. right. Because wasn't your email was like, wasn't it, you had Seattle in your email, didn't you? It still is. It is? Yeah, okay. it's Seattle DIY, and then I have a New York number and a Texas license. So oh, hell I'm, yeah. I'm all about confusing people. So you went to um, Austin from, just like from touring, you settled there, like because of touring stuff, or, or how did you find yourself there? Because... That's like a, obviously a hub for tour, like touring acts and stuff too. Right. Well, the plan really was um, that uh, you know I had a really good apartment, like cheap cheap rent everything, um, 
and I've always said that once I lost that apartment, then I would just move out of New York because I can't right. afford to live here or pay like you know twelve hundred dollars to basically have a storage space. Um, so Austin was just kind of a natural choice. Um, it's warm in the winter, which was uh, definitely a positive. And um, how long were you like away from? Were you getting more and more away from your apartment in New York as you were because of work? Yeah, I'm. I've been on tour consistently for eight months out of each year since like 2011 at least. Right. I've been touring since 2010. Yeah. So the knitting, like you know, I obviously know you from the Knitting Factory, mm -hmm. and I want to talk about the Knitting Factory because I think that's <laughs> um, obviously it plays into your job a lot. Yeah. And it play. It's also pretty important for what I'm doing and what I've been doing, and. Um, uh, I was one of the one of two or three basically talent buyers that worked at the knitting factory like in the last couple of years when it was you know obviously many people probably know the venue so I'm just prefacing this for whoever might be listening to um, but uh, now it resides in Brooklyn but at the time when you and I both worked there it was um, on Leonard Street in lower Manhattan uh, below Canal Street which I would guess would would be kind of considered like the Tribeca? Yeah, it was Tribeca. Right. So, you know, and I don't, I didn't necessarily want to dive right into the knitting factory, <laughs> but I guess that it's like pretty like relevant to like what we're talking about too. Yeah, definitely so when, lots of material there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so when it closed, it closed like in the, basically like at the end of 2008, right? Yeah. I mean, I, they still did some shows uh, through 2009. Um, yeah. Right. Um, they did actually, yeah. Come to think of it, I know that the big like Black Friday fire, like most of the people, was like was you know set up um, some months before the turn of two thousand eight into nine. Yeah. Um, if I'm if I'm remembering right, which I, you know, I've told this story a lot to my friends and to different people about um, basically how that club closed, and like many clubs in New York, especially there's a there's a certain turnover you know over a period of time clubs come and go like um and new york has a very storied history of that but um i see having like continued working in music stuff as like an agent and and i even went into tour management like right after that um how much because it was a big you know it was a pretty big staff of people mm -hmm. yeah three floors that was booked almost every night of the week um, and how they all splintered out into different jobs in the music industry. So uh, I guess just for the sake of context here too, like uh, when did you start working at that at the Knitting Factory? Uh, let's see. I moved to New York from Seattle uh, in two thousand four. Yeah. So basically, once I moved here, um, I didn't really. I knew. I had one friend that lived in New York, and uh, a friend of hers, uh, actually, yeah, a friend of hers, um, Adam Fisher, was uh, an engineer at uh, at the Knit, and got me a job uh, in the basement venue at the old office. Yeah, it was the. It was called the basement. The bottom floor of the club was the old office because yeah. at one point in time it was just a two floor club, and that was the office. I'm not mistaken, right? That was a little bit before my time. <coughs> 
Right. How I understand it was there was the main space on the on the ground floor, one would say, and then the floor below the ground floor was um, divided in two. Before my time, uh, half of it was like the tap bar and half of it was something else. Uh, right. I forget what, what that was called. Maybe it was just the office or something. Um, and then the basement was an office and like recording studio. Um, and then, but whenever I started working there in 2004, uh, the basement had been turned into another bar. Right. Okay. So, um, you got that job basically what sight unseen and you hadn't like, they were like, Hey, we're hiring someone straight out of school. I don't even think they were necessarily hiring anybody. It was just the way people got jobs at the knitting factory is by knowing other people. Right. That's how I got my job. <laughs> yeah. It was like a yeah. It was through Michelle Cable, who you know runs a Panache, a booking agency Panache, which is where I went to work after the Knitting Factory mm-hmm. closed. But I'd been writing for that as when it was a fanzine. It was like a punk rock zine, newsprint zine. She yeah hooked me up with Chantel and then Shay and then I ended up getting that job. Right. But um, so had you know had you must have had experience working in uh, clubs before that, no, doing no. sound before that. Not really. Um, I went to school in Seattle at the Art Institute of uh, Art Institute of Seattle uh, for audio production, and my passion was in recording, in being in a recording studio environment. And um, and I moved to New York just for more opportunities because Seattle was um, pretty saturated um, and kind of closed off. Um, to fresh meat <laughs> mm. so as far as being a studio engineer as far as being a studio engineer um, and so uh, yeah so I just I moved to New York uh, I got some internships I worked at a jingle house I worked um, mm. I ended up getting um, a studio management position at the magic shop which uh, oh, what was, is that uh, it was like a Grammy award-winning uh, recording studio in Soho uh, that just recently closed, I think maybe this year. Mm. Um, and and then, yeah, and then I was also working at the Knitting Factory. Um, so doing both. Yeah, and so... Because that was just an internship too, right? The When you were working at the, the, the gym, studios? Most of those were internships. Um, the studio management position was an actual position. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then I was working actually at a lot of different clubs. Um, the Knitting Factory is just sort of like a stepping stone. I also worked at Club Midway, which was in the Lower East Side. Um, I did stuff at Union Hall, and uh, for a brief time I worked at Webster Hall. Uh-huh. Uh, this was like before Music Hall of Williamsburg. Of course. Um, and yeah, because the like New York a ton clubs, Europa, yeah, right? A ton of because in, in like looking back too, because I moved to New York in 2005, so the venue, obviously the the kind of structure of venues in New York uh, for live music in 2004 and five is you know very very different than how it is now, mm-hmm. um, and it was much there are fewer and far between in a way I guess right. So when you were you just picking up gig like did one club lead to another to another just from meeting other people that were doing sound at these clubs too or how did how did that even come together definitely i mean the knitting factory really was just sort of the stepping stone into everything else because a lot of those engineers worked at other clubs um so sometimes they would ask me to fill in um 
or they would just point me in the direction of, of you know a production manager that they knew at a, a certain place. Um, also, regulars at the knitting factory would hook me up. Um, so, yeah, and the Magic Shop Recording Studio also owned the living room, mm, uh, right. which was like a singer songwriter like Haven, uh, right. also in uh, the Lower East Side. Uh, and yeah, so I worked there as well. So you already knew your way around the board, like before um, g- getting into a club. Now, I mean, as I say that, I'm even you know the console in like a studio engineer, like in an actual like recording studio, is completely different than like the board at, like in the old office mm-hmm. and stuff. So did you? How did you pick that up? How did you learn that? Just just like in a rudimentary way. Right. Um, Actually, going back to Seattle, uh, I did have to have like an internship in order to fulfill graduation requirements. Um, and a friend of mine uh, was a booking agent at um, what was it? Oh, it's called Graceland before she purchased it, and it was it was then El Corazon. And oh yeah, the which is still a club in Seattle. It's still a club. Right. She no longer owns it, um, but. So I worked at that club, uh, and at the time they had just like a front of house console, and they also had a monitor board. But the front of house engineer would have to run to the stage and like do monitors. Really? Yeah, because uh, they never hired uh, a monitor engineer. How big was that room? Uh, I would say it was probably like four hundred cap, something like that. So I mean, so you still like if it was a sold out show or like a big show, you would have to like like muscle your way through the crowd to get to the monitors. I mean, I was still at school, and I had absolutely right. no idea what I was doing, especially in a live uh, live setting. So, right. honestly, the engineer there, he just plopped me in front of the uh, in front of the console and was like, "Okay, if anything feeds back, you touch these." You know, mm-hmm. like uh, it, he he was he was indicating the the graphs, you know, instead of like the actual board itself. Um, and he basically got everything set up. What do you mean by graphs? Uh, they're just. Um, they're just EQs for each uh, for each monitor. Like um, those are presets or no? Uh, no, it's a piece of outboard gear um, that has all of the frequencies from twenty. See, I've never done monitors before, so I mean, you got like <laughs> yeah, I've done a lot of shows right. before. But. Um, it's just one of the tools that we have to uh, to battle feedback and right. to also you know every speaker is different, uh, every monitor is different, every you know. Every room is different, so um, you need some of these tools just to, you know, make things sound natural, um, as well as manage things like feedback in a live setting. Right. Um, so then you already so you came to New York with some you had like a baseline of experience in the club. How, like how long yeah. were you working at El Corazon in Seattle for? Uh, at the time it was Graceland. Oh was, right, right, right. Um. You know, it was just for a few months. Okay, so yeah. It was my graduating year in 2004. Um, And so, I don't know, maybe once a week or something like that, I would come in and and just hold down the fort. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) But um, getting back to your, like, original question, um, like, the thing that I enjoy about live sound, you know, versus working at a studio fresh out of school is that when you go into a studio fresh out of school, they're not going to give you a lot of duties, you know, and even if you land, even if you land like an assistant engineer role, you're still sitting on your hands until someone tells you to do something. Right. So a lot of honing in your skills 
gets lost in that downtime. Um, and the thing that I appreciate with live sound is you just get immersed in it and you immediately are touching knobs, you're touching faders, you are troubleshooting, and it's so much more exciting. Right, and especially I feel like when I, if I remember too at the Ninny Factory where it would be like, since there was three different, three rooms, each of like a, like going from smaller to larger, each, you know, as the sound person became more adept and confident and, and was also getting you know, other jobs too. They weren't trying to stick around in the in the hundred cap old office for very long. Like, so whoever was coming in under them would, you know, they would definitely be getting work because no one would, you know, oh, yeah. not a lot. No one wanted to work in that room for the. Mo- I mean, maybe they did, but not. It wasn't the same as doing a big show in the main space. Obviously. Yeah, I think I took my time there because I, I like to think that I kind of owned that room for a while. Oh yeah, really? And uh. Yeah, so my first show, my first day ever on the job was a hardcore show uh, in the old office, nice. and the soundboard was like right next to the, st- like right in front of the stage, right in front of like the PA was on sticks. Right. Um, and so I spent that show, uh, I spent that show uh, just standing on a chair bracing half of the PA with one hand <laughs> uh-huh. and sticking my elbow out and, and kind of kicking kids, you know, the other. Um, so at went, one point, yeah. I got roundhouse, and whenever I was back by the bar, um, just kind of checking out the sound, and also I was kind of getting fed up with being, like, pushed over and right. stuff. Uh, some kid, like, roundhouse kicked me in the nose, in the bridge of my nose. <laughs> and then there were two shows that night. The second night... Um, was just a just a normal like rock show. Right. So it was um, an early and late show, right? So it was an early and late show, um, and you know the normal like just random you know just whatever bar band that was playing uh, the late show. One of the fans got offended that another fan was holding uh, another man's hand. Wow. Okay. So he started a fight, and then. Uh, and then we were all trying to like break it, uh, break the fight up. And then this guy like clocked me in the bridge of my nose. Oh my again. god! <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> welcome to New York. Yeah, two shows in a row. <laughs> two shows in a row, and my nose still isn't broken. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, that definitely sounds like a very knitting factory style scenario too. Oh yeah. Like there was a lot of unpredictable shit that happened in that club too, and. There were um, many riots. There were there was yeah. so much, so much stuff that happened. Yeah, cause, and there was such a clash of genres too, where it would be like there would be two totally different shows, like early and late, and mm-hmm. and you know, the crowd may still be you know interspersed with one another, whether they want to be or not. Um, I remember I did uh, Merle Allen and the Murder Junkies in the old office, and the drummer. Who I think was in the original Murder Junkies when when it was Gigi Allen, right? Um, who I think had like a green afro or it was like a wig or something. He, he <laughs> didn't have. I know he. I think he was either naked or he was at least like just had like underwear on or something. But at, near the end of the set, he totally stuck the drumstick like super far up his ass. And <laughs> <laughs> during the show, I and mean, this Merle Al- Allen too, who you know was has a pretty imposing figure. He's got these long ass black dreadlocks and like a crazy 
facial hair. But anyway, that was in the same room that you got roundhoused. Oh, yeah. And yeah, the old office too was seemed like so it was so far underground too. It was like two levels, sub levels underground. Mm-hmm. It's basically like being in the subway almost. Definitely. Um, so then, how did that like? How did you? Because you know when I when I came in too, you were already like you were. You were one of a, of a couple of people, sort of like as the main were the main sound people, if I'm remembering correct, at least. Um, how did you? What was that experience just building up to that? Like, mm-hmm. uh, well, I probably spent like a year and a half or two years in the old office before I felt confident enough to do a tap bar, just because, um, just because I was still honing in my skills as far as an audio engineer and was didn't want to like you know fuck up a show basically um so once I felt comfortable with that then I moved up to the tap bar and you know that was you know I I think like I I loved working in the tap bar um the main space uh let me see they I want to say that they didn't have a monitor console uh for much of my time there, and then eventually they did uh, put in a monitor console, and that's whenever I started working in the main space. Right. Um, and I don't remember the timeline sure. when that when that came into play. Um, but so then that kind of pushed me into also the the main space rotation of front of house or monitors right. or anything like that. Is that, is that the first also, time you did monitors? Uh, yeah, that was the first time okay. that I had experience doing monitors at a venue. Um, and then there were also certain engineers wouldn't do certain shows. Um, and yeah. I, just, <laughs> I just wanted to do like whatever. Like, right. I, and so it's all um, coming back to me now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I would just take whatever work was available. Right. I mean, right. Most of my time at the, at the New York, uh, New York knitting factory days, I was, I was working seven days a week and then also working a day job at least five days a week. Um, Were you still doing studio stuff then too? or For most of that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I quit studio stuff once the Brooklyn thing opened because I took over as production manager and, and head engineer at the Brooklyn right. location. Who was the, who was the guy that, who was the... Well, not the production manager, but who was the main sound guy at the at the Nitty Factory on Leonard Street that we worked at? What was his name? Jason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, and then, I w- do you remember? You remember everyone else that worked there too? All the other sound people. Most, yeah. Because it was like it seemed like there was like at least ten, or more. Mm-hmm. Like there was a ton of people. Like, um, yeah, some I definitely remember that because you know I did a lot of hip hop shows there, and uh, there was some. And some were, they were all very, you know, hip hop is such a broad term too. And there was, you know, a broad range of perform- performers and in, in, the, in the crowd. But I, I definitely remember it was, it sort of div- divided some of the sound people up a little bit who would take those shows. But the, I know the, like when fucking subhumans or like some like really like tough hardcore shows or like the hardcore matinees that went like, did you do any of those matinees? The all-day yeah. hardcore matinees? Oh yeah. oh, yeah, definitely. We did those. Uh, I remember doing 24 bands in 12 hours. That's kind of the, the right. joke that we called it. Uh, that uh, that was sort of like a battle of the bands. And oftentimes, yes. you know, we were working 
you know, like the Battle of the Bands thing would happen on a Sunday. I was working a Saturday night. Saturday night would wrap up at like two. You know, we might do a little after hours partying um, and then just sleep at the venue because right. I mean, we had to be at the venue by like, you know, eight or nine in the morning and nobody's going to try to hail a cab back to Brooklyn just to come yeah. back, you know, so. Um, there was definitely a lot of sleeping at the venue. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I only, I, overnights. right. So where would that, it just in the back, there's like one couch in the backstage. Would you sleep on the stage? Uh, just yeah. wherever? Wherever, green rooms. Right. If the, if there were a lot of people, then sometimes we would just take folding chairs and make little beds. Whoa. Yeah. So there'd be like, if it was, you know, if it was a big, like all day matinee thing that went into a night show, then a lot of there would be a lot of staff for it if it was the all club thing, right? Yeah. How many people, what's the most people that spent the night at the club that went from one night to the next morning? Do you remember? Oh, I have shit memory. I right. don't know. <laughs> yeah, I never, I mean, I stayed late, but I never woke up. I never spent the night at the club. But yeah. I mean, for the most part, it would just be like, you know, if a bartender was scheduled, maybe it would be like a bartender, maybe it would be a bar back, and then the sound staff for, you know, each room. Right, right. So, um, yeah, wow. Music security, I don't know. Like, wow, yeah. So that's yeah, that's a long party. Um, <laughs> and then, did you do um, three floors of ska? Oh, I did lots of <laughs> three floors of ska. Which, three floors I of did. ska was like a pretty well-known event too. I think, which is oh, yeah. Shay, who was the um, the GM. I don't yeah, know. He was, yeah, he was the GM. yeah. Who gave me my job? Who I love very much, and is, I think he's a great guy. Um, I haven't seen him in a long time, but nevertheless, like he was super a, a great GM, fun GM to work with, if memory serves me correctly. But he did. Um, he was like came from the ska world and was like the Scatolites like tour manager, I think, if I remember correctly. But he did this event that was called Three Floors of Ska. It was probably no different, you know, besides the genre of music than like an all-day like battle of the bands or hardcore fest where it was like when you have three rooms it's basically three different venues all shoved into the same yeah. space um that also just had one doorway to load in and out of yeah so you yeah you talk about that <laughs> there, was, there was also the three floors of goth oh shit yeah yeah, yeah there was goth nights so i mean most bands that play well yeah Doing any show in Manhattan is a pain, you know, just because parking is an issue, loading in is an issue, um, and yeah, the fact that you had to load stuff down, like, basically two flights, three flights of stairs, really, um, was a pain for a lot of bands, and we didn't, we didn't have loaders, everyone had to do it themselves. Yes. Um, so, you know, the... Most complaints obviously came from, you know, the kids that were playing in the basement, especially a lot of those shows were the hardcore shows. So, you know, everybody's got like big Marshall cabs and, you know, like half stacks or trying to put full stacks down there, like eight <laughs> by 10, like base cabinets, you know. Yeah, three, going down all three the heavy floors. Stuff. Right. Yeah, in a very narrow stairwell, you know, and, you know, if you're doing it before the, the doors open or before any of the other rooms in the club are open, then it's much easier. But trying to get your gear out whenever, you know, you've got patrons, you've got barbacks, you've got, yeah. you know, security running up and down the stairs. It's, it 
very chaotic. Yeah, I can remember definitely seeing bands attempting to like load out like in the middle of the show and there's just like drunk people going up and down. It's all one stairway, one entrance way, um, which is pretty, in a way it's like pretty awesome because when you go to any other most mostly any other venue you know there's like separate entrances there's back there's alleys and different doorways and you know there's just (laughs) one way in and out and it's just it's amazing there was not that anything too terrible happened although someone definitely died at one of my shows so i will i i remember people dying yeah yeah um in the anyone like the person that died at my show was in the bathroom, so I oh, remember it's probably the same one. Then. Yeah, he he overdosed in yeah. the bathroom, which was in. But I remember we had to hold doors because I had a hip hop show. I'm not gonna say what hip hop show it was, but I had a hip hop show in the in the main space, and um, it was over. And uh, but some you know unfortunate soul uh, was uh, you know had passed out in the bathroom and and um, was unable to awaken. I mean, I, don't, I, I mean, I guess, I don't know if that's like the right way of putting it, but you know what I mean? So, but it was like late at night and we had to hold the doors and keep people in the room while the paramedics and like the ambulance and the police and like everyone came and we had to go, because the bathroom was downstairs too. Yeah. Had to go down there and bring this poor fella up while like a lot of anxious people from a hip hop show are are like you know ready to leave so yeah that shit was crazy yeah um yeah nanny factory was like that's like and i know there's a lot of other venue institutions like first ave i think the 930 club and like and uh you know emos and uh i mean i could there's a ton many many more but like those are those ones like the empty bottle, but but again, I don't want to like just regale like a million venues at you, but I feel if you worked like at that club like in the last like five years, and I'm talking about the Knitting Factory, um, as it went like as it closed, it's just like you know uh, you like just totally like earn your stripes on a place like that because it's a lot of very different personalities and a lot of different kinds of musicians and a lot of different. New York was a, at a certain place too, where Brooklyn didn't exist in the way it did as like a, as like a musical destination, or it was just starting. And I interviewed Todd P too for this as well, mm-hmm. which was kind of like of that near that time too. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, the Knitting Factory definitely taught me how to be a New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you still work with any? Do you do you work with any of the sound people from that time? Have you have you guys? I mean, knowing that you went to the other Knitting Factory, mm-hmm. but are there? But after actually, we should backtrack a little bit. So you went to the other Knitting Factory, and then how long did you uh, stay there, or, or what was your job there? So. Um, 2009 was the opening of, uh, I believe, Brooklyn Bowl, um, as well as uh, the Knitting Factory in uh, in Brooklyn, um, and maybe Brooklyn Bowl opened late 2008. I forget yeah. exactly their timeline, but I was working right. for them as well, um, and then I shifted my focus to the the Brooklyn Knitting Factory just because I had more responsibilities and I was there like seven days a week. You were hiring um, and assigning staff and 
you know, I was doing all of the production management, all the advancing shows. That's sort of how I, um, you know, learned what tour managers ask for and such. Um, and yeah, that, that kind of became my baby. Um, but I was really, I don't know, probably for two years prior, I've been actively trying to tour. Um, and I'd been meeting with uh, lots of managers and, and, you know, submitting my resume and everything um, with no success because I hadn't cut my teeth on the road yet. Right. Um, so nobody was really willing to give me that shot. Uh, so, you know, I told, I told the people that hired me uh, for the production management and chief engineer role um, that I did want a tour and everything was, was cool with that. Um, and then I started touring in 2010 and there just became a point where it became obvious that I was on tour so much that it was harder to be like a manager of anything. Right. Um, and so, uh, so I think I quit in like maybe 2011. Right. Uh, Would you just say to that focus on touring? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, I mean, would you say that's like the nat the the natural trajectory for like um, for like uh, a sound engineer that's also known as a front of house? I mean, some the, your average listener might not know that too, but where they would um, go from a club, you know, they would want to evolve from a club sound person to going on the road and, and picking up those jobs. I've known a lot of those people too. I mean, that that's kind of a fair assessment, right? Like, I would say for a young uh, for a young and eager right. engineer, um, that is the trajectory. Um, and then, you know, once you're a little bit older, maybe you've toured for many, many, many years, maybe you've settled down, you have a family now, um, those, or maybe you're just tired of the road. Maybe you just want to sleep in your own bed. Um, and that then you, eventually does happen. Yeah, right. eventually. And then that's whenever you get like the older engineers who, uh, who work at a venue who just they want to be home right so it's kind of kind of comes full circle what was your first tour when you like your first time going out uh first time was with a band called deer tick right who deer tick 2 was kind of a part of that knitting factory family you know yeah i would say there was a little nepotism in uh my getting that position um just because their label was affiliated with the Knitting Factory. Right. Um, but they hunt, I mean, they played a lot there in the, their early years when, you know, John Chavez, um, you know, is still their booking agent, mm -hmm. but also was like, had, you know, I think he, I think they were kind of like found there in a way, or at least they were, in, in the early incarnation of them was nurtured in that original room. You know, I remember, I remember them playing on, New Year's Eve with like deer hoof and someone but um, anyway uh, all, the, all the deer bands right so okay yeah so and then you you've actually done more than just that I mean you you've done a lot of tours with them oh, right? yeah so I would say that deer tick was sort of the uh, stepping stone into touring with other bands um, because I did a lot of their other projects so um, I toured with Deer Tick as their front of house engineer for about three years. That was at the to start. That's very what very beginning. Right? My very first tours ever, um, and then 
uh, I also did their middle brother tour. Um, I also worked with Diamond Rugs, which was another offshoot of them. Right. Um, which is a totally different makeup of a band. Too, right? Yeah, yeah. These are all different bands, but just right. comprised of uh, other members of, of Deer Tick. Um, and then also... Uh, um, so... I also worked with Delta Spirit, and I worked with Delta Spirit because of Matt Vasquez, who was also in Middle Brother. Um, and so it's just kind of like a little family tree. You know, you start with one band, and then, uh, you know, maybe you work with some of the people that open for them. Maybe you work with some people from a side project, and then it just kind of, you know, goes here and there. Right. Um, and then other work just kind of came to me naturally from uh, you know some other touring friends who couldn't maybe couldn't do a tour sure and then just passed it on to me and then yeah yeah kind of goes on from there and there yeah I have like about two or three uh, managers that always throw work my way right yeah and I, I feel like a couple the few other sort of front of house tour manager people that I know it's kind of there is like a a small family of, of that specific kind of person that has that work um, that goes from that has their regular bands and then uh, on their various off you know cycles or whatever then they pick up work either through the management or the label or or it's doing inadvertently doing sound for the opening band that they bring along or something mm -hmm. like that um, so yeah, beyond the beyond that like nucleus of bands, you you've worked obviously work are working with someone on this trip too. But this is just like right now here in New York, it's just a flying right. Like or or you guys you're actually no, we're, driving. Yeah, we're oh, okay. we're on a full tour. Um, oh my bad. So <laughs> yeah, this is uh it's about maybe a two two month tour something like that. So where are you it's at right really right now? Uh, we're we're in our second week. Um, and this is like the bootleg tour. So normally, uh, David Ramirez tours with a band, um, but he's trying to get some some funding for his next record. Um, so he's just kind of make it low key. Um, and so we're recording. I'm I'm recording every show. Are you? Um, and uploading it to a Dropbox, uh, and then uh, all the ticket ticket buyers get a link to that Dropbox and to that can get each that. show. Uh, just to the show that they went to, um, oh. that they, they bought tickets for, but it's encouraged. I think it's encouraged at least that uh, that other cities can like interchange their. Ah, uh, uh, cool. They can kind of trade their bootlegs, exactly. sort of, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, how quickly do you have to put that show up? Is it like the next day? I try to do it within forty-eight hours. Whoa! And you're doing that too. I'm doing that. Yeah. So and that's yeah. Okay. Mainly that's just because uh, I just don't want a huge workload at the end of this tour. Um, and then also we're relying on promoters to get, you know, to email these links out to the ticket buyers. And I just don't want that to like, you know, uh, right. be forgotten. <laughs> yeah, it will get forgotten pretty quickly <laughs> yeah, after the show is over. Everybody's really busy, yeah. Right. How are you recording? Do you have like, are you miking up the, because he's just solo on this, right? He's or? solo, yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's four inputs total. It's two audience mics, his vocal, and his acoustic guitar. Oh, cool. Um, and I'm running that through the console and taking the outputs from the console into, I've got a Zoom recorder as a backup, um, and then I also have uh, this little Focusrite uh, like 
interface preamp thing that I'm running Logic. Oh, cool. Yeah. Crazy. So are you, are you mixing it on the fly or like, like is it as if you're just simultaneously doing the, the sound on, on, on the main board, but you're also, are, are they like identical? Uh, I mean, excuse my ignorance. No, no, I know. I'm just trying to uh, think of a way to explain it without getting too technical. No, I mean, feel free to get technical. I want to learn, and I think, you know, the people that listen to this is like a broad mix of people. So I'm interested because, yeah, I mean, I I just simply don't know. But, I, I, you know, um, I figured it would, I would assume it would be two different things. I don't know how you would merge the two. Seamlessly and turn it around as quickly as making it available, like the next day or two. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are multiple ways uh, that you can do this, and I'm not multi-tracking. I'm just it's just uh, just a left and a right. Um, so and it just kind of depends on what console you have. Sometimes you have a digital console. Sometimes you have like an old analog board. Right, um, right, okay, yeah. You know, and so each room, I just have to assess what is going to produce the best mix. So. Um, let's say we have a matrix out, which is just... What's that mean? I know. <laughs> you have to answer these, though. Um, so it's just like an output. It's basically just... Um, we'll just call it like a parallel output, right? That, you uh, can that didn't make it much easier. No. What's a parallel output? Um, so you have your main outputs, right? right? To go to the PA. You have your left and your right. Sometimes. That would be like in typically like Dude. in DI boxes, right? Or does it matter? It, I mean, they would go the out the left right outputs from the console would go into your processing, which would go into your PA. Gotcha. You generally don't touch that stuff, right? But you have other outputs. So some outputs you can assign to um, auxiliary sends, and auxiliary sends are what you use primarily to send um, effects to. Um, so you get reverb on a vocal um, or uh, monitor sends, right? So the each channel that an artist wants to hear, right. then you would use that auxiliary send to send them, uh, send them their their level. Um, so then moving down the console, you might have like group outs, um, which just means that each channel you can assign to a group, right? Okay. So that a group you could just have one or two outputs, right? Whatever, however many outputs that you have um, go to, and you can assign those to, you know, your recording unit or so. A matrix is kind of like one of those group outs. Basically, um, with a matrix, you can send the left, right. So you don't have to do, you don't have to like create the mix. It's already there. It's just through the left, right. So whatever's going through your left, right into the PA is what you're getting into your, like, in my case, my Zoom recorder um, as my backup. I mean, and for, you know, the sake of like a bootleg live show, it's not like the, it doesn't have to be meticulously mixed, especially with one, it's basically one channel, right? Like, I mean, maybe that's not the right way of putting it. It would be two channels, right. Right. So. For vocals and the guitar, is that what you mean? And then audience mics, right. Okay, gotcha. So. Because I have audience mics, um, I have to. I kind of have to build the mix. So right. if I have groups, then I'll just assign things to the group. Um, and uh, sometimes I just have to, to use those aug sends that I was talking about to build a mix 
um, for like my logic, uh, my logic file. So when they asked you to do this, were you like, well, I don't know how to do that? Like, you, I mean, how well, you I, have I you recorded? I mean, you had done bands in the studio, right? I mean, were you applying yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, I've okay. I've, I've come from a recording background, so. Right. Um, I mean, we. I mean, even at the Knitting Factory too. Now that I say that too, because all this is like coming back to me. Is like, I mean, we would. You would. You've probably recorded plenty of bands just taking a line out of the board, right? Like to. Yeah. Some yeah. sometimes people would bring their little portable recorders right. in and be like, "Hey, can we just get a left right out and." and record the show for us just you know hit these two buttons here and right. there we go you know so it wasn't anything new um and then i also whenever i'm on tour especially with a band i've never worked with um i usually have my zoom recorder and i'll record the first couple of shows and if the artist asks or sometimes i just play it for them just to make sure that everything's cool and oh cool yeah, I mean, it's are you? The way they want. What? Uh, so, who else have you worked with in the last, like, in this past year? I mean, is it, have you been you've been going from one to one, like back to back? Uh, yeah. So, um, so a couple artists that I work with regularly. Uh, Noah Gunderson, he's a singer songwriter out of uh, Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this year, primarily, I've been working doing monitors, stage management, and back. Uh, I've been a backline tech for Postmodern Jukebox. What are, what's that? Uh, Postmodern Jukebox is like a YouTube band. They take pop songs and rearrange their uh, rearrange them um, as like jazz or or big band numbers. What kind of rooms are they playing in? They're playing theaters. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. What's well, so what is that like? How many people are on stage for that? Cool. Uh, it sounds like a big like ass 11, band, right? No. I think I think eleven. So, and you're doing front of house? No, I'm doing monitors. Okay, so that's like you must be. What is that? Two buses or something? Or like, how how are you going from show to show there? No, that was just a that was just a bus. Okay. Yeah. Um, earlier this year, we did three and a half months in Europe, um, and those buses are a little bit bigger. And then uh, this. I guess, I guess the end of the end of summer, um, we were just in Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and Malaysia. Oh wow! So was that a first for you? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that was. What was your first European run like? Who was that with? Deer Tick, actually. Right. A while ago. Yeah, that was a long time ago. So what do you see any difference at all, like um, from room to room, or the boards that are being used? Like what? How would you? What's the contrast really in your from your perspective, leaving touring as a front of house, I'm assuming you're also, are you tour managing too? I mean, when you're overseas, most times. you are? Yeah, so most you're tour times. managing overseas too. So you're most settling? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, I so, yeah. So, just really quickly, what, how do you, do you see much of a difference outside of the obvious, like sometimes there's some communication language barrier or something like that, but there's probably not even that in the rooms, and, you know? Yeah, I mean, European, I think the main difference is uh, Europeans tend to take care of their bands better, you know, like hospitality generally, and it it ranges from country to country, but um, for the most part, like hospitality is on point, and like people are very prideful of their countries and their cities, and and they want to treat the bands and, and show the band like... Hey, this is this is us right um, 
It's not just a case of water and a case of PBR. Yeah, it's not. It's not the bare minimum. Right. It's not a couple of drink tickets. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, there are obviously like other differences. You know, like in in Europe, you tend to play, at least on a smaller scale, you tend to play weirder venues. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you're playing a castle. Maybe you're maybe you're playing a you know, just a regular club. You know. What's like the strangest place in Europe that you that you can remember playing? Doing sound in? Probably, probably a castle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, the Milan, sound must be was, pretty. Well, it was it was sort of like in the courtyard. It was um, it was with Jonas Policewoman, uh-huh. uh, and she opened up for Lyle Lovett. Oh uh, wow! And it was uh, like half of half of this residence in Milan was was uh, was not like it was not really occupied and it was kind of like falling apart and stuff and like the other half were like the groundskeepers kind of like lived there weird um, yeah it was but I mean Lyle Lovett that's a big show I mean how there must have been you yeah know. it was probably probably 1200 oh interesting yeah hmm yeah that's cool yeah, it was pretty fun. So when did... I'm sure uh, there were weirder spots, but that's what comes to no, mind no that I mean I think that <laughs> just even imagining it is really neat um so uh, I did want to go kind of backtrack just a little bit because uh, when you started, you weren't you weren't doing tour management stuff too. And there's, I think your average listener too might not really even know one what a tour manager is, um, even less so what like front of house is. And you know, basically, uh, just to really quickly like kind of um, alliterate, you know, what those two things are, mm-hmm. in your words, um, sure. and then. I'd love to talk about how you like you because you do both and Mm -hmm. um, so what so just explain like in the most elementary term possible like so what is a what is front of house sure so how I would describe it to my parents yeah there you go (laughs) is um, front of house uh, is what what I do is I mix the the sound that the audience hears if I were to explain what a monitor engineer is, then I would be mixing what the band hears on stage. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the rudimentary that's perfect. Uh, elements of what a front of house engineer and what a monitor engineer is. Uh, what a tour manager is, is <laughs> basically a road parent. <laughs> yeah, it's a little more nebulous. But, uh. Yes. Um, there, is a, there are a lot of duties um, as a tour manager. Um, and most of that work is, it, it depends tour to tour because each band does things just slightly differently. So, um, those things get worked out, but essentially, you know, what I do is I book hotels for my bands. Um, I route, uh, I route our schedule, route like the, how long it's going to take from city to city. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all before the tour this starts. This is all before the tour starts. I advance the shows. And by advancing, I mean, uh, I get in contact, I, I have a contract, and on that contract is the promoter's email address and phone number. I get in contact with the promoter, and we go over the terms of the contract, and I make and, and I let them know what we need and what our timeline is, and I confirm all the details so that whenever we arrive, everybody's on the same page. Right. And then... Um, Which is essential, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so then, uh, 
you know, you also have to deal with like merch and you have to deal with, uh, you have to deal with settlement. You have to make sure that hospitality is there for your bands. And once, so you, you, once you arrive to the venue, you're basically doing everything over again and making sure that all the terms of the contract are met and that your band is happy and that's priority number one. Right. So when you were at the Brooklyn Knitting Factory, I mean, you obviously dealt with that, the other side of that a lot, you know, advancing the shows with tour managers. Exactly. So when, at what point in time, what was your first time tour managing a band? Because it's just a totally different experience than doing sound. I mean, you're kind of focused on one duty uh, which is you know also obviously crucial when when you're doing the sound but you know it's so much broader as a tour manager Mm -hmm. so what was when how did you transpire into that sure um i think the first time i tour managed was with deer tick i think it was just like their tour their regular tour manager couldn't do the dates and it was a very short run maybe okay uh i don't even know the timeline of it um but it was like maybe just like a week. Oh, maybe it was around, uh, well, I don't know. It, it could have been around like Newport Folk Fest or something like right. that. Um, but. So you had already like been on tour, you know. Yeah, I had been on tours before. and I'd been observing you know, sure. what the tour managers did and had, had to deal with and. And thinking to myself, I don't ever want to have to tour manage because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a lot it's of work. Rough. Yeah. And when things go smoothly, it's great. And when things go wrong, it is a total nightmare. Um, and yeah, I think just out of necessity and also I'm kind of just game for anything. Um, I just, you know, when Deer Tick wasn't touring, whoever else hired me um, after that, I would just probably whenever I really started tour managing and right. and cutting my teeth on on that and how do you like doing that initially I didn't I didn't think that it was possible um, for you to be a tour manager and an audio engineer and do both effectively um, or well um, and then I just sort of strove to try to accomplish that oh yeah um you know and so no one thing takes priority over another obviously i have to prioritize you know things that have to happen um well when you're doing both you're you're unavailable during the time that they're performing so if anything happens you got to be like sort of have like that in mind because you can't just run away from the board too to like tend to some other shit so Yeah, yeah. I mean, during a show, if I'm mixing a show and somebody's texting me, hey, I can't get in, you know, I was supposed to be on the list. You know, it's like, sorry, dude. Like, uh, (laughs) I wish you would have gotten here at doors. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep, yep. Something like that. Sure, sure. Obviously. um, But, you know, I mean, there are times that you can step away from the board, you know, like, um, but yeah, it's it's all about prioritizing, and, and this industry is all about um, uh, doing things on the fly. Yeah, no question. <laughs> um, I mean, even just us uh, linking up for this interview, just because you were happened to be here, I remember I was like, oh shit, she's in town uh, to tomorrow. Um, <laughs> so you're um, tour managing this tour with this yeah. guy too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, with a single person on stage, I mean that's that's pretty chill, right? Mm-hmm. 
That is it just in a van? Yeah, it's two people in a 15 passenger van. It's just the two of you. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that that's is it's, there and it's mean, luxurious. There's not a lot of gear either. No. So mostly merch. Right. <laughs> so where did it start? We started. Uh, well, we left Austin a couple weeks ago, uh, and the first date of the tour was Tulsa. Oh, cool. What is that? Canes? Uh, where were we? No, we weren't. In, it's we, not like we that. Right? No, this is a pretty. Have you ever done that that have, room? Yeah. I've never been like there, but I'm fascinated with that club. Gymnasium in there. Is it? So it's not really the best sounding place in the world. It's not the best sounding right. place. Cool. That's I fun. mean, it's got great history, and it's right. you know, it's you know, definitely has a vibe, but it's not the best sounding place. Right. Um. Oh, I have. So do you end it? Memory. Do you, I don't remember. Do you finish in Austin too? Oh. Um, we actually finished this leg in Albuquerque. Hmm. Yeah, and then we do a bunch of dates, a bunch of Texas dates in December. So now it's it, is the work primarily you're doing when you're going out. Is it is it always both now, where you're doing front of house and tour managing, like, or is it still a mix for you, or how does it work now that you've been doing it for a few years, more than a few years, really? I would say that, well, Deer Take is probably the last band that I've ever only done front of house for. Okay. And not had a double duty. Um, every other, I think every other tour I've ever been on has been double duty of, of some sort. Even with uh, Postmodern Jukebox, I was monitor engineer, stage manager. So while I didn't have to be a tour manager, which was awesome, I still had, uh, I still wore a bunch of other hats. Right. Wow. So okay. So that's just the job itself. It's not. It's like, I guess you could call it double duty. But if you've been doing that for so long, I mean, it's just you're doing all that. But, I mean, admittedly, there, there aren't a lot of people that do that though, right? Like, who would you? I think you have to like to be tour manager and front of house. I think in this day and age where budgets are pretty thin, um, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you're not willing to do that. I mean, there are definitely some guys who've been in the, and I say guys as a generality. Right. Because um, it's not like, even, not to interrupt you either, but I mean, it's a pretty healthy, for, for front of house tour managers, it's a pretty, I, I could be wrong, but I feel like it's a healthy mix of women and men in, in mm -hmm. that business, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've got a core group of lady touring crew that's that fucking rock. Um, but yeah, uh, but I think that anyone who is anyone who's too stubborn to uh, to be willing to do the job, you know, uh, that that is asked of you, you're basically just shooting yourself in the foot. Um, and yeah, sorry. I forgot where I was. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. I mean, I just, I just, even just for a few more minutes, because I know you yeah. even have to go get to your show too. Yeah. So, when is when's load in for you? Uh, I gotta be there at four thirty. All right. So, so pretty I much straight it. from here, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, well, I mean, do you? So what's so what's I mean, you know, obviously, I feel like when you're doing this job, like you're really going from you're working tour to tour. You know, mm -hmm. like, D 
do you already have like the rest of your year is, is like already wrapped up? Do you have stuff in 2017 already confirmed? Not yet. The, the way work comes to me specifically is generally maybe three months out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So I would say late November, people are going to start asking me for my availability for 2017. Do you pick up jobs in Austin? Do you work in clubs just when you're like home? It's really hard because there are so many uh, so many engineers that live in Austin. Right. Um, that the times that I'm home, which is you know maybe a month or two in the summer and you know maybe a month or two in the winter, everybody's home. Um, and also those are times that not a lot of uh, not a lot of things are going on. Right. So finding work is a little rough. Um, I did work the first weekend of ACL for a production company out there. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so yeah. I mean, you can. I mean, at this point in time, too, you've probably done every festival in in the U.S. as well, right? Almost. I still have not done Coachella. Really? Yes. That's surprising. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's all uh, you know. It's all contingent on yeah. the booking agent of that artist, and if they're on those things, then you're gonna do I, mean, I was supposed to work for Melody's echo chamber um, the first year she was uh, she was booked for Coachella um, but unfortunately her visa hadn't been approved uh, um, so she had to cancel all of her US dates mm. um, but that was that was gonna be my chance that was my shot Damn. <laughs> I have a feeling that'll probably come back around yeah, somewhere definitely. what's like uh, I, I wanted just a couple of these like so you know barring you know uh, Coachella withstanding like as far as like a large festival space, as far as doing working front of house, like what what do you think? What's your favorable one, or, or the one that you enjoyed? As far as you know, knowing that they're all kind of similar, mm-hmm. you know, in many ways, but there's some anomalies here and there too. Like what do, which one do you like doing, or did you enjoy? Uh, I really like Sasquatch. Um, just that's also close to home. Yeah. Uh, for me, um, it's beautiful too. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, that's in the gorge in Washington mm-hmm. State, which most people, I think, by now, it's it's quite. I mean, it's a huge, huge festival. Yeah, so. yeah, that one is definitely my favorite. Uh, I don't know. I mean, have you done all the rooms in? Sorry, have you done all? Just just that came to my mind just talking about Sasquatch too, knowing that, you know, how you started in Seattle at Graceland, like, and that you've toured so much. Now it's you know, I'm sure you've done you know, every size room too, you know, uh, um, how has it been going back to Seattle too, where you, you know, grew up basically, and you've probably done all the way, you know, uh, what's the, Neptune isn't the biggest uh, room, but that's close, it's, it's a big close, one, right? Yeah. Uh, what's your, the more might be bigger. Right. So you've done, done all those? Yeah. Cool. I haven't done Paramount, which would be, I guess, the next size up, and before, I think that one would be before like the key arena or anything like that yeah. i haven't done any like major i haven't been on a tour that has done any like arenas maybe a festival at an arena right but yeah interesting i mean would you that seems like it would be almost like just super stressful to do like um do you feel do you have a desire to to do that or it's just um like to to do is it even a challenge to do sound in a place like an arena yeah, because it's an acoustical nightmare. Right. Nightmare. So do you prefer, like, the the smaller 500, 400 cap rooms? Like, does that feel the most, um, 
comfortable? I would say I'm most at home in a van and trailer like tour. Hell yeah. Rather than you know, rather than a bus. But the thing that I miss out on is like working with a crew. You know, maybe in a van and trailer you you just have like a merch person with you. Um, and that's cool, but like you can't really talk shop with the merch person. Have you uh, brought a monitor people with you? Yeah, yeah, I've I've toured with crews. I mean, I've I guess I have done van and trailer tours with, uh, you know, with like LDs and and you know other crew members, and those are great. I you know, but I, I kind of miss working on crews. Yeah. Do you? I miss. Yeah, I remember the LDs from the Knitting Factory too, because they sat right next to the front of house. Do you? Do you? Are you able able to bring anyone from that? Does anyone go with, out with you from back then? Like anyone that you've worked with like for a long time? Like that's your go-to as, your, as far as your team? Uh, my pool of LDs is pretty small, but um, I do reach out to some of the, the people that I enjoyed working with from the knit, but they're always, they're always booked too. Right, yeah. Everyone now seems to have found their path one way or another, right? Definitely. Yeah. Um, well... I won't keep you any longer. I really appreciate uh, you doing this, and I, I love it. I love, and I, you know, I, I, I've never successfully been able to book you for a tour, but I've definitely asked a couple <laughs> times. And um, no, it's like it's real work. It's like what I, I think the average uh, concert goer doesn't really even register like that when it's like a you know a, a touring headline act that plays in rooms whether they're like a bowery ballroom size room or much bigger or even smaller there's oftentimes there's someone and it's usually one person that's doing sound get, uh, settling up with the night manager of the venue that night and dealing with the artists and all their idiosyncrasies and then you know getting back behind the wheel and driving to wherever the next place is or wherever they're crashing and stuff mm -hmm. and i think it's a, a pretty awesome very commendable job so <laughs> I appreciate it. you're the first person that does that that I've talked to too yeah. so um, thanks for <laughs> that too yeah cool yeah. yes yes well that was my conversation with Melanie Reniker on the house list um, I want to thank her for taking the time to come by and do the chat while she was on tour and um, yeah, I want to thank you guys for taking a few minutes of your week and listening to another great episode of the Houseless Podcast um, produced and hosted by me, Peter Agostin, edited and engineered by my man CJ Stewart out in Humboldt County, California, opening theme music produced by Dame Funky Keith Ede. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Just search the Houseless Podcast. It's right there. I please urge you in great earnesty of <laughs> to just yeah hit that subscribe button, leave a comment, um, and uh, you know spread the word. If you like to hear it on another platform, you let me know. It's also available on SoundCloud. You can go backslash the Houseless Podcast. Yeah, if you if you want to uh, hit me up. If you have any feedback or thoughts, just write me an email at thehouselesspodcast at gmail.com. All right, so that's another episode. I'll see you guys next week. Have a great start of your December, and uh, let's try to make the most of this last month of this crazy 
brutal, heavy year that we've all endured. So until then, take care, y'all. See you soon.